Welcome to the Wealth Standard Podcast with host Patrick Donahoe, author of the best-selling personal finance book, Heads I Win, Tales You Lose, and one of the nation's most influential financial advisors. The Wealth Standard's focus this season is investing. 2020 opened with markets and asset prices at all-time highs, but many of us experience more financial uncertainty now than we did a decade ago. Although there are more choices and opportunities than ever before, the risk-to-reward ratio teeters on a global fulcrum, contributing to the roller coaster of emotions surrounding financial well-being. It seems like everyone is walking on eggshells. This season, we'll cover topics revolving around investment theory and strategy, atypical investments versus conventional investments, and the role of investing within personal wealth strategies. The Wealth Standard Podcast is committed to inspiring you to be more financially free. There is no better time to gain clarity about your wealth strategy, your investments, and your financial future than now. Hey, everyone. This is Patrick Donahoe. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode of the Wealth Standard Podcast. It is a pleasure to have you. You guys are in for a treat. It's an honor to interview Andy Tanner. Andy is a rich dad advisor. He is the author of 401 Chaos as well as Stock Market Cashflow. He is also the host of the Cashflow Academy podcast. As I mentioned, Andy's been on here before. He is a good friend of mine. We get to do some things with our families together. It's awesome. We have these like marathon meetings whenever he comes in to do a podcast that lasts upwards of, uh, of four to five hours. But Andy is, he's someone that I have a tremendous amount of respect for. And he has uh, principles as his foundation, as well as his personal values that I have a tremendous respect for. But yet he continues to change. And how he changes is because of the environment that he's in. Andy is a Rich Dad advisor. For those of you who are not familiar with Robert Kiyosaki, he's the author of Rich Dad, Poor Dad. But as an organization and as a philosophy, they are constantly growing. They do not conform to the status quo. And so even though Andy has an incredible foundation, he continues to be challenged and refined just because of him being the paper asset guy. And he's written extensively about markets and the role that they play, as well as how to capitalize from an investment standpoint on it, whether it's up, down, sideways. Andy and I have those discussions on the podcast today. So you guys are going to enjoy it. If you haven't listened uh, to the previous episodes where Andy has been on, if you really like him, definitely go and look at those episodes. We'll reference those in the show notes. And with that being said, thewellstandard.com is how you get the show notes, as well as links to Andy's website, his social media, his online resources, and his his academy, which is membership-based. I know he has several free resources. However, his bread and butter is a paid membership course where he mentors you directly. So Andy's a great guy. You guys are going to love it. We have a cool conversation. This season is awesome. I wanted to have Andy on early because him and I have a, a very similar philosophy and perspective on things. And him speaking about the stock market, which is his expertise, I felt was appropriate, as I assume most listeners, especially new listeners, this is the primary investment that you are a part of. Yet most investors are participating in this asset class in very much the same way. This is a totally different way to look at it. So we hope you guys uh, enjoyed this episode and uh, we will have another great one next time. 
But for those of you who are new to the show and want a a context, a better context as to how I perceive and view investments and the role investments have with your overall personal wealth strategy, go back and listen to the previous season. So we've had five so far. Obviously, the podcast has been on forever since 2007. However, we have been taking a season approach where we're focusing on one central theme. And it's awesome that investment has really become the capstone of the previous five seasons. And those themes have been life, liberty, and property as the 2018 seasons and themes. And then in 2019, we focused on capitalism, which is the infrastructure in which the rights of life, liberty, and property really are able to bear lots of fruit, as we've seen historically. And then the entrepreneur, uh, which is the uh, last season of 2019, where we focused extensively on how to maximize your best asset, you how to find ways in which you can prove yourself, make more money, discover a meaningful career, profession, something that you love that you would never retire from. So that being the case, hope you guys enjoy this interview. Go back and keep supporting us the way that you have. You guys have been amazing. Subscribe to the podcast. Give us a good rating on iTunes. It always helps and uh, share with your friends and family. But uh, without further ado, here is my interview with Rich Dad Advisor, Andy Tanner. Hey, everyone. This is Patrick Donahoe. Welcome to this episode of the Well Standard Podcast. If you guys are listening, uh, you can actually go and see the video of it. I'm here in studio with uh, my buddy, Andy Tanner, and he is my distinguished guest today. <laughs> distinguished? <Yeah>. Well, <laughs> super distinguished because we, you came in 20 to 30 minutes early. That distinguished. And that's usually, I'm like, well, Andy, what's going on? Habits. But you, but we talk for three to four to five hours we sometimes. Can. We've already been going for two hours. We chat. Yeah. Anyway, so we're here, but we're going to talk investment. Let's do. We're going to talk your expertise, the, <laughs> I'll the do, I'll depth do my of experience that you have. No, I, I think you, a unique perspective, unique experience, I think is going to be hugely valuable, but we're going to start with some rapid fire stuff. This stuff makes me nervous because I wasn't good in school <laughs> under pressure. Well, it's all instinctive. So. All right. Here we go. <laughs> all right. One word answers. All right. Pre-work. Who was your role model? Someone look, that you looked up to who inspired you? Dad. Superhero. What superhero or icon in history do you most resonate with? Superman. Charitable causes. What charitable causes do you support? Multiple sclerosis. I can't even say it, but the biggest one is CF. Okay. CF is huge for us. What's CF? Cystic fibrosis. Okay. Got it. Yeah. Huge uh, advancements, by the way, on that in the last year. Everywhere. I was reading Peter Dumandis stuff yeah. recently. Jeez. Yeah. All right. Legacy. If there was one attribute that you can impress upon your kids, grandkids, the world, the this audience, what would it be? Self-discipline. Awesome. Dude, you're amazing. <laughs> I was concerned that our chairs wouldn't align because you're, cause we, when we stand good. side by side, I look My like- My torso is wide. And How tall is Zach now? He is as tall as, I don't know what it is exactly, but my dad kept a marking yeah. board, yeah, yeah. right? And he's, he turned 14. He's as tall as I was when I was 16. Oh man. So he's two years ahead of me, but I had a heck of a spurt after 16. I grew almost a foot in high school, so man. we'll see if he keeps up. He's going to be taller than yeah, but he can't. He's I'm, mom. I'm anyone else? Still, I'm still a better athlete. <laughs> <laughs> we could go off on so many topics, but we're going to talk fire. about investment. We oh, did rapid. We did rapid fire. Rapid fire was more. Uh, it tells you how a person thinks exactly right, and that, I think that's important, especially as you talk about investment, right? Because obviously, you've written some books on it. We have them right up here: four hundred one chaos, stock market, cash flow. There you go. Do you have any other books that we don't know about? I write cathartically all the time. I have, I don't know if I'll leave it on my computer for my kids to find all my 
little catharsis. But when I have an issue in my head, I find writing about it. If something bothers me, yeah. that's a great form of catharsis for me. I cannot type. So it's hunt and peck. Oh, man. And a lot of really bad voice to text technology that has to, that makes no sense. They're going to keep But I, I write as a person who doesn't know how to type or mm-hmm. spell mm-hmm. or grammar. I write all the time, but I don't like to publish. I like to write for my own. There's a, Is that weird? No. Well, there's also like bizarre? a, there's so many different benefits from it. So Ryan Holiday wrote a book recently called uh, Stillness is the Key. Mm-hmm. And he talked a lot about writing and the fact that the activity itself gets so much out of your yes, mind. It right. It like allows you to, to see yep. things different, to see them clearer. Anyway, so it's, that's, it, that's it, amazing. That's it, it, very stoic. I, I think that's a good insight is yeah. if something's inside of you and you write it down, it releases it from outside your body. At least it's out there where you can see it. Yep. And the and physical activity it. of doing it is huge. Yeah. I do a lot of that actually. All right. Let's talk about investment. Yeah. So this is obviously a very broad subject. So I just wanted to start with a broad question. <laughs> How do you characterize an investment? An investment is when you put something in, whether it be time, energy, heart, soul, money, and you hope with the aim to get more back than what you put in. Does that happen a lot? Sometimes. Sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> sometimes you put in, you, get, you don't get it back. That's, called, that's what risk is, right? <laughs> so let's talk about financial investments. Yeah. What have you experienced over the years? Because you are, this is your profession, in yeah. a sense, is money, financial education, speaking. You do a lot of market-based things. What are some of the common reasons why an investment will succeed? And what are the most common reasons you see that an investment fails? Well, that's a question that could last the rest of the podcast. Mm -hmm. Really could. I would say number one is financial education. I would say that is number one. If I were to write a book, another book, I would call it The Second Bridge. In all my travels, I've seen two things why do people go to seminars? Why do people read books? Why do people listen to podcasts constantly? Thousands of people are wanting to do better, which is good and right. And so should they. And when I've asked the question, if I start seeing the same faces and they don't get out of the rat race and they don't get it, two things that they usually Mm. don't have. Number one is they're in an investment they don't understand. So in a culture of advice, people center on the investment rather than the best store. Education is a personal development of the investor. For example, let's say we do some options. We sell an option. We sell a naked put. You would think a naked put is a naked put for one person, for another person. The risk is there. Not true. Warren Buffett does this. My mom does this. Two different outcomes. So the education and understanding of what you're delving in is massive. Most of the time in my life when I've lost money and when I've asked other people that have lost money, most of the time, it was a lack of understanding of what we were doing. Hmm. We got excited about the investment, but didn't take pride as an investor. Is an investor someone who invests? Well, that's like saying someone with a scalpel is a surgeon. Yeah. It's, so it's not the activity. It is. The activity is, is the like non- the last. Yes, the activity correct. of the action is like the last yeah. step. Just because you can't I just do go surgery, like you just can't skip to the last step. <laughs> I can't call myself a doctor because I do surgery. Yeah. I can only call myself a doctor because I have skill to do surgery and I'm certified to a certain level. The second gap, which is the one that is more frustrating for me, actually, because knowledge, while I'm not a great student, I'm willing to work enough to get it. So I don't learn quickly, but I'm willing to put in the time to learn. Not a quick learner at all. 
But what really is frustrating in my life, which is which comes back to the question you asked, what would be the thing I'd want to instill in my children more than anything else? Discipline. Because often what happens is we have knowledge, but there's a second gap that requires a second bridge between what we know and how we behave. And so often I'll have people that I know that I know darn well they know how to trade options. They know how to manage risk. And I'll see them blow up an account. I'll say, why'd you blow up your account? You know better. Well, Andy, I didn't follow the rules. So the knowledge is the first bridge. You know, if you don't know what you're doing, you're in trouble. So you bridge the gap between ignorance and knowledge. Mm -hmm. But once you have the knowledge, there's another gap between what you know and how you behave. You know, I always make the same joke. It never gets old. I always say there's 50 pounds on me that my wife isn't uh, legally married to, according to her. She goes, I'm not married to that. That was not part of the original agreement. One of the majors of many I went through in college trying to figure out what I wanted to do is exercise physiology. Mm -hmm. So there's no gap there in how this little pot gut of mine got here. No gap in knowledge. I know how it happens on the atomic level, right? The Krebs cycle, the CO2 out, O2 and carbon in, the whole bit. But despite that perfect knowledge of how it got here, for some reason I haven't implemented that in my life yet. (laughs) You know, it's a lack of either discipline or invitation or whatever. Those are paramount to investing. We have like, you have cognitive mastery, which is mastering information. mastery. Yeah, and then you have physical mastery, right? Not practical. Like in practice, there's not a practical mastery, which is why when you said for your sons, what's the number one thing? Self-discipline. The ability to execute what you know is really, discipline is when you do what is right, whether it feels good or not, Mm -hmm. right? Whether it's timely or not, you just know what to do and you do it. That's a huge part of investing. So this is an important question you've asked mm-hmm. because we have a culture of advice where people don't want any of those bridges. Just do it for me. Yep. Give me a financial advisor, make all the decisions for me. I'll hire that stuff out. There's danger in that. Danger in that because now you're limited. There's a bit of a, per, a conflict of interest, number one. And now you're limited to their knowledge and their behavior rather than your tanning over the ship. So if you drop your kids off to daycare for 20 years and you come back and they're not the people you wanted them to be, well, <laughs> don't complain. Well, if you drop your money in a 401k for 40 years. Or 409k. You, you're for, we'll get to that. Yeah. <laughs> I can't make fun of Trump's 409k because I can't type. I'm not allowed to do any of my own social media. My partner, Mike, if I ever make a post, I, I get chewed out because I can't. I'd be 10 times worse than Trump, 100 <laughs> times worse than Trump. <laughs> 409k. Can you believe that? Well, if you look at the nine, you know, the parenthesis, just, it's a shift key, right? Yeah. Hit, you know, well, I don't know where it is on his phone. That's on the keyboard. <laughs> does he do his own tweets? I, or does have, he out? I don't know. I have anyway. no idea. I have no idea. That's a good question. Big picture. The key to investing is the investor less than the investment. The culture of advice is an investment centered culture. Culture of true investing is personal development of the investor. Warren Buffett is not who he is because of what he bought. It's because of what he knows and what he does. And there's more than one way to heaven. There's an interesting book by uh, Zuckman, who writes for the Wall Street Journal on Jim Simon. And it's interesting because Simon destroys Buffett in terms of returns. I mean, he's not there. He, he almost doubles him up. He's almost twice the effectiveness. And Buffett, you usually start in the 60s when you look at what he did with Berkshire. Yep. This guy started in 88, so it's a good sampling. He destroys Buffett. Buffett buys and holds and gets dividends forever. This guy, he's in a trade for a week. He's a swing trader. Mm. Destroys Buffett. Doesn't matter which one you want to do. If they work, don't get dogmatic and say, this is the best way. Mm. 
but it's not because of what they bought. It's because of who they are. I hate the 401k for that reason, because it suggests returns and prosperity minus the development of knowledge and discipline that is really required for anyone that. Two points back when you're making the comparison between Buffett and, and Simon. Yeah. When you compare returns, that's, that's, it's a comparison, right? Here's this fact, here's yeah, that fact. It, when you look at all the other variables, and this is where I've, I've often said the same thing. But what I thought about when you said that is, what is Buffett trading? What's yeah. the scope of it? Right? It's not How much fair. It? It's not fair to compare them yeah. really because Buffett, you look at Buffett and I think he's only got one stock in his stock portfolio that isn't paying a dividend. I think the reason he bought is he think it's somewhere probably will and his cost basis is so low. Yeah. You look at Coke, Buffett probably looks at it in two ways. Is if you compare Buffett to Simon, you can say, well, Coke's at 60 or whatever it is. I don't even know what it is right now. 60, 70, whatever it is. But Buffett bought it at three bucks. That's his co- average cost basis. So you can say, oh, he bought it three and now it's 60. That's his return. That's really unfair to compare that to what Simon does because Simon will get more because that's capital gain. But what Buffett really cares about is the dollar forty-seven dividend they pay every year. If you're getting fifty percent now, he's at fifty percent a year on the dividend based on cost basis. So in that way, Buffett's probably destroying Simon. But either way, they both got more billions than they yeah. ever know what to do with. Either way, so it's a little bit unfair because one is more of a cash flow model, and the other is more of a capital gain model. And certainly, Wall Street is all about the capital gain model. They don't care about dividends. And I'd also say it comes down to objective, right? So if you look yeah, at what are you their, after? their yeah. objective, what are they doing? What are they doing yeah. it for? And then what is Both the effect. what is the individual, the individual investor? What are they doing it for? Because for Buffett, it's a business. For yeah. Simon, it's a business. For the individual investor, it's kind of like, well, they have their business, probably yep. their profession, their job, and so forth. But then you have their investment. So how do you read between the lines and say, okay, what is knowledgeable, educated investor? Like, what's their objective? What are they after? And then the actual training, education, seeking that. Do they need to have a really refined purpose in order to do it successfully, or does that not even matter? Well, I think purpose and objective are different. Purpose, why am I investing? Objective, what do I want to achieve? Mm-hmm. Okay. So for the average person, this is real quagmire because the education system doesn't really point you to either one. The education system says work for money, get a job, right? Yeah. That's it. So that creates a problem for everybody because they're trying to be something that they're not. So if a person like people come to me with the 401k thing all the time and they say, what should I do with my 401k advice question? Not a growth question. Tell me what to do question. So for that person, that's kind of a quagmire in terms of that objective and purpose Yeah, is they may not even know what that is at all in the beginning. So let's say my objective is that my purpose is freedom. Mm-hmm. So my objective is to get a passive income above expenses where I don't have to work anymore. That's fair. So that's where you begin to study and that's where you start. You're, okay, then you're a cash flow investor. I have dogma that I prefer. My dogma aligns with Robert Kiyosaki's dogma, which is cash, cash flow. Income. But I will tell you, I would be dishonest. I would be blind to the truth if I didn't find many people that have become tremendously free, rich through capital gain stuff. Simon and Buffett are great examples. Buffett's a cash flow guy. Uh, Jim sent, uh, Simon, he's a capital, capital gain guy. Billions both ways. Mm-hmm. Both of them are financially free. Both of them don't want for money. Both of them are living lifestyle wise. They're very close. Philanthropy could be the same. I mean, 
most money managers, portfolio managers are cash flow guys because they just live, you know, they live off of fees, whether it's performance fees or management fees. Businesses is cash flow. Yeah. Like if you look at the BI triangle, you got your three integrities outside and your your other five in for the foundation is cash flow. Yeah, yeah. The outside is mission, leader, and team, but mm-hmm. the inside foundation is cash flow. And mm-hmm. businesses are certainly fundamentally in a fundamental analysis. As soon as your cash flow is dead, if you look at that cash flow idea from a financial statement, you got four boxes, income, expenses, asset, liabilities. Let's look at those four. Mm-hmm. Okay, expenses always saying as many going out, everybody has them. So now you got three boxes left. You either do what job people do, which is new money in cash flow or cash flow investors, new money in. The best way I think, it's just my opinion, to deal with expenses that are new is with money that is new. If you have a new phone bill, you got to have new money coming in to take care of it. If that cash flow dies, now you got two boxes left to pay the, you got assets to pay liabilities or liabilities. So if you go to assets to pay, now you better be a damn, well, I better not swear. My mother hates it when I do that. I have to put the E on the like When I put damn me, my my mom gets so, I'm sorry, mom. Although I did read that if you swear more on your podcast, you're likely to have more listeners. Well, what are we doing? <laughs> what are we doing? That would be easy. So if you have no cash flow, how do you pay? Your, now you're in the capital gain of, can you buy and sell your gold fast enough to keep up with your expenses? And that puts an hourglass. And then the third one is, okay, if you have no assets left and you have no income, now you have to borrow, mm-hmm. which is the cash flow pattern of the U.S. government. So, and that's fine because they can print money, no problem. Mm-hmm. So that's fine for them to do that. So you look at this, you ask this question as an investor, how do I want to, what's your objective? How do I want to pay my bills? Mm-hmm. Do I want to do it with a job that gives new money? Well, then I get laid off and I have to work. Okay. Do I want to do investments that produce new money? That's dividends and rent. Or do I want to do it capital gain? Now you're moving from the income column, depending on the asset column to pay your bills. That's tougher to do maybe. Unless you're Jim Simon, where you're a stud and you can compound that thing way faster than your expenses, which in a sense gives you a income above expenses in a way. But the problem with the 401k is those two cash flow patterns, income was the old pension model. Capital gain is the new 401k model. Most people don't have the financial education to see that the column they're draining into expenses is switched. And the risk has switched because the income from a pension, well, that's the company's problem to deal with stock market fluctuation and problems. 401k, now it's me. Yep. The responsibility shift. So as an investor, you can learn a lot about investing by looking at the 401k model and deciding, well, gee, what is my purpose? Is it freedom? Is it riches? If it's freedom, it's income, passive income above expenses. If it's riches, I mean, probably capital gain. Because you're going to have to expand your assets drastically if you want to be a philanthropist and change the world or your cause, or if you just want to be driving fancy cars, which is not my thing because I don't fit. But it might be someone's thing. Your thing might be really it, fancy it, shirts, which yeah, you know you work show up with. That's my wife's thing. Oh, okay. not in my thing. I thought her things were, were Robert shoes. Graham is the only tailor that. I mean, I'm sure there's probably richer people than me that can do better. But I love he, your shirts. He does big and tall, so that's mm-hmm. who we go with and my wife likes them if it were up to me it looked like i just mowed my grass <laughs> i come in here and flip flops and 
I would like to have grass right now. I'm kind of sick of a little winter. grass. <laughs> what kind of grass? I know you're a libertarian. I know you like, you know, Johnson. He's kind of a grass guy. <laughs> you want to talk about the cannabis market? I'm actually going to bring on a guy that I met that is like, he knows more about cannabis. That it's, it's incredible. My favorite cannabis stock, it's down bad now. I lost a little money. I was in it and I was writing covered calls on it. So the loss wasn't that bad, but I just mm-hmm. liked it to play with it. I don't know what the official name of the fund is, but the symbol's MJ. Mary Jane. Mary Jane. Yeah, MJ. I don't know what's that. It's like the alternative harvesting whatever fund, but it's been down. Um, cannabis is an interesting thing. My mom was asking about what it was. She saw, we saw a little CBD or whatever it is shop and THC is the bad and the CBD is like curing cancer or whatever they say. And she didn't know what it was. And my wife, she's been using hemp lotion for 10 years. Didn't even know it. I go, Marcy, look at, I Googled it right in front of her yeah. on the phone. I go, there's a marijuana leaf, leaf on, on the, the package. Yeah. She goes, is it that lotion? Like that? Yeah, it's the white. Yeah. yeah I love that stuff. I've used, I use that. All, yeah. She's used it for years. I go, Marcy, there's a marijuana leaf on the thing. She goes, I'm using marijuana. I go, no, it's, oh boy. Well, all right. Let's make a point out of what we just talked about. How do you characterize markets or how, how have you come to understand the different markets that are out there and their purpose? Markets. I'm not an economist, so you're smarter than me on this stuff. But to me, a market is a category of supply and demand. We have an energy market. What is the supply and demand for energy? We have an agricultural market. What are corn, soybeans? What's the supply and demand for that? We have a financial market, which is really a stock price is based on supply and demand, Mm -hmm. not the earnings of the company. The earnings of the company is secondary. The supply and demand is primary. That's Mm -hmm. why the chart tells the truth more than the fundamentals do. So to me, a market is looking at the supply and demand and emerging market. You know, what is the supply and demand for this stuff that's emerging in these countries? So that's the way I think about markets. Yeah. That creates, I would say, all things being equal, fair pricing, right? So it creates, you know, based in on the theory, supply, it's on the it creates kind of like a clearing price. In theory, AI is an interesting thing to think about because most of the AI, my feeling is, I don't know a lot about it, so maybe I'm talking out of turn, but most of the transactions now on Wall Street are made by machines. Mm-hmm. And that's tough because does it create a fair market? I suppose it's everything is fair. What's, I mean, define fair, right? I mean, life isn't fair. So therefore everything is right. You know, all's fair in love and war. I don't know about war, you know, Jimmy Stewart's mom, but yeah, I mean, I sometimes wonder if, if we're a little disconnected from the fundamentals sometimes, because if, if your machines are doing high frequency trading and the AI is really looking at just technical stuff, and, you know, historically markets have gone up over time. Mm-hmm. And does it disconnect from the fundamentals? I mean, I certainly look at the run we've had in the last 10, 12 years, which is unprecedented. I don't think our GDP has grown. I don't think what we've actually produced. So is that fair pricing? Mm-hmm. Is it because please don't hate me? I just don't know a good analogy. I, yeah. I'm not a sexist. Okay. But I like saying this. If you had a beauty contest with all ugly girls, that's kind of what it looks like now is perhaps U.S. stocks are the least ugly person or man in the beauty contest. That's where there's so much demand. Yeah. Right? I mean, would you rather, you want to save euros? Mm-hmm. You want to risk everything in gold that doesn't cash flow? Well, it's I mean, not good for things to go down, right? The overarching theory for business, right, is they like when things go but, up. But Jim, if you look at Jim Simon's portfolio, mm-hmm. do you know his two best years are? Gosh, it's 2000. Yeah. Howard Marks, like he cleaned up. Two during... best years he ever had were in the downs. So yeah. it's down bad. Well, it depends on it. It's all perspective, For sure. right? 
If think about this. But the overarching theory, though, it's like growth. People want growth. They want consistency. Price is going up and down. I mean, think about this. If you go to the gas pump and you're an employee and prices in gas go up, that's a bad thing. That sucks. If you own an oil company or you own some ExxonMobil and you see the gas price go up, well, depending on how many shares you have, that's so one guy can go to the gas pump excited and one guy's bummed. Mm It's all relative from where you are. So I wouldn't say markets going up or down are good or bad. So what, if, well, what if about it goes a, up really huge and it's a bubble, is it good? Yeah. What is, about is from a, a company forest, perspective? On, don't go off of this though. Cause look, is a forest fire bad? Is it bad to purge Yellowstone National no. Park with forest fire? Yeah. There's always so good going that comes down. From that. Yeah. So going it's hard up to and do down. I, the perspective. I don't see it that way. I don't see up is good, down is bad. I'm like, eh, up is up and down is down. It's Robert Kiyosaki says it this way. I don't have a right hand, a long, wrong hand. I got a right and left. They're just different. Yeah. So I don't see. And I love that perspective. I, I, I'm trying to see it from like in the, terms the of, average person. In terms of people getting hurt gives you a different perspective. Yeah, totally. Because if you look at, and people say, oh, 401ks are going up. That's good for people going down. I don't know. They give all their money to Wall Street anyway. That's where I was going to because the asset prices, stock prices, company prices. I mean, there's the biggest corporate buyback in like history where. You have yeah. businesses that are essentially issuing bonds at really low interest rates, right? Not necessarily investing in infrastructure, right? But creating liquidity in their company, yeah. pro- keeping you know the price and the value high and going higher. But then you also have this new wave of how businesses are capitalized and how valuations are of, done. There's a lot of reasons to issue bonds, though. Yeah. Other than that, well, look at Apple. Here, Apple's a great example. So, what repatriate over in yeah, over in Ireland, they got all that money. So, if they bring that money home, what's their charge? Thirty yeah, percent or whatever yeah. it is, thirty percent. Okay, issue a bond at what three? Yep, tax free. Yeah, borrow money, tax free, repatriate the money you've already. I'd go bond every time. Oh, hundred percent. There's all sorts of reasons, but then I think you just look at what you see most commonly, which is corporate buybacks yeah. in order to prop up share value, right? So I look at, you know- Some people look at it that way. Some people say, oh, look, they're confident. They're buying their own stuff. Yeah. You know, is it a prop up? Hey, speaking of propping up, you look at that in a macro idea. For this market to go higher, what is required for the market to go higher? Influx of cash. In other words, money needs to come from somewhere. Influx of cash. Mm-hmm. If that money's earned, it's one thing. If it's borrowed, it's another thing. Borrowing money, and if it's created out of nothing, which the Fed's starting to do again, kind of surreptitiously, you and I—that's a whole nother freaking podcast for you and I. No wonder when Just we the, get the together. repo, the repo stuff. That yeah, doing? yeah. No wonder when we get together, we talk for five hours. There's we so can't much to stick on a topic. <laughs> you can, I can't. No, I mean, there's so many forces. I mean, I think fundamentally, supply and demand. Okay, yeah, that yeah, supply and demand. There's this mass supply. There's this much demand. This creates a price. If demand goes up, prices go up. If supply is the same, you know, if supply goes down, but demand goes up, even bigger price. If so it's one of those assuming like assuming a stable dollar, that's fundamental. But then there are yeah. all, all of these other forces, right? So you have right. obviously the way in which accounting is done these days, the different For financial sure. instruments, right? For now sure. you have so many different options in order to get an, a, get an outcome. You know, I think one of the biggest like in lawsuits going on right now is by, by Citadel where they're suing their quant, right? This strategy that's all based on volatility. It's like this micro volatility is where they're making all of their money, right? It's not necessarily on the fundamental value of- Correct. That stuff doesn't- Bank of America or GE or whatever. You know, I have a graph in my latest chart or in my latest class where I draw a line of time frame. you know, from long-term to micro trading in milliseconds or whatever they do it now. 
and I have a graph of the importance of fundamentals it's against that. Down and it down just and goes down and to down. zero. Yeah. I mean, uh, the fundamentals don't change in a microsecond. That brings up another thing back with AI. People think they're worried about competing against AI, and I would warn them not to think that way because you don't need AI. You're not trading against AI. You're not doing it. You're not competing against them. You're just playing a different game. Because here's the thing. The way you need to play the game, or the way you could play the game, I shouldn't say no one needs to do anything. The way you play the game is you say, look, the market goes up, down, or sideways. And I'm going to be prepared for all three in terms of risk management and position size, number one. That's number one. Can go all three ways. Now, does it matter what causes that? No. In other words, if AI causes it to go up, who cares? It went up. Well, maybe it was better sales that made it up. Maybe it was better GDP that made it go up. Yeah. Maybe it was a devaluation of dollar where it just takes more dollars to buy that many shares that made it go up, mm-hmm. right? Is it really more valuable then? Well, I don't know. But regardless of what makes it go up or down, I've never really cared and nor will I ever care. So if it's AI that makes it go up or down, mm-hmm. high frequency train, I don't care. Mm-hmm. I don't care. But what is interesting is if we're going that way, does, consider, does that disconnect you from the fundamentals? And the answer is yes. To a degree, you'd have to because they're making such quick decisions there. So who is still bases their decisions on fundamentals? Buffett does. Who else? Buffett, (laughs) me. I care about fundamentals. I hate talking about the same stock all the time. It seems like every time I've been on a radio or on a podcast, I talk about Kraft Heinz. And it's a Warren Buffett company. He owns a ton of it. And I bought a lot of it last year off the dip. And I didn't do that for technical reasons. I did it for fundamental. fundamental reasons. And I did it for cost basis reasons. And I did it because I think there's going to be ketchup on the table, regardless of what AI does. At the end of the day, I think there's going to be, if I go to a restaurant 10 years from now, mm-hmm. I think it's going to be Heinz on the table. I don't know that. That's the risk. But that's my bet. And so that's a fundamental decision where I write options to get paid to buy it, reduce my cost basis with an eye of faith that their dividend will get higher with inflation, that their dividend will increase as the dollar loses value, and that my cost basis will be low and we'll still be eating ketchup. That'd be an interesting like econometric type of study is to look at the volatility and and how quickly people's tastes change when it comes to condiments as opposed to food. Well, we think foods change different. Or they That's a knock on Kraft Heinz. That's a knock on look, they own Oscar Meyer, they obviously craft macaroni and cheese, Philadelphia cream cheese. I mean, that Kraft Foods is like, I think Nestle is bigger than they are, but they're like the third largest in the country. They're big, yeah, yeah. right? But there's more salsa sold now than ketchup. There's a couple big knocks on it. If you want to look at the other side of that trade, not to get into the minutia of it, but a lot of people are more health conscious. And so they say, well, is macaroni and cheese in trouble? Well, I'll keep that personally sustained out of my own freaking family. So I'm not worried about that, <laughs> right? There's more salsa now sold than ketchup. People like salsa. People like to say salsa. 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 Jerry Seinfeld. People like to say salsa. (laughs) But with that said, I still think that fundamentally, fundamental analysis, I don't think ketchup's going away. And the other problem with them is they've got too much debt. They really do. Understanding it economically is a big deal, though. They have their stock dropped. This blew me away that their stock dropped on this. And I feel like I'm on an island because I'm not an economics professor. Okay. I'm. C minus average basketball player trying to stay eligible in college. But I didn't understand this because I always feel like there's people that should be way smarter than me on this. But they had a write down of their brand equity, meaning 
what's the brand Heinz worth? You know, if we sold the name Heinz, could you go sell a new Mayo under it or whatever? Hmm? And they just overestimated that, which happens all the time. It's like, what's your house worth? You don't know till you sold it. It's the only time you know. So maybe you put down in your balance sheet, oh, my house worth, you know, 10 million and it's only worth five. So they wrote down billions in that, but that doesn't affect the cash flow. It doesn't affect how many ketchup bottles were sold. So their stock drops huge. I'm like, well, that's just good. That's just cleaning house. In fact, what that means is your return on assets just went up Hmm. because the amount you're declaring in assets is now that's a better ratio to income. So why is it going down? I don't Hmm. know because the SEC is mad they did it. There's probably people smarter than me. But the thing gives me a lot of solace in that Buffett's making 300 million a year off it. If you have a machine that's making 300 million a year in dividend and someone says, hey, your machine lost some value. If you want to sell your machine, do you care? So again, cash flow investing, whereas these other guys, all these algorithms were about prices of stocks mm-hmm. for capital gain, but from a dividend cash flows point, are they selling ketchup? Do you know what percent of their profits go to the investors for dividends? 57%. Oh man. Do you know why that's a big deal? Heinz 57. Has it been that way for, is that just coincidence? It has nothing to do with Heinz 57 yeah, sauce. So. It's just coincidence. But see, so Buffett's thinking about this cash flow wise. What does the company make? What do they sell? Yeah. The AIs are totally disconnected from the business. They're like, what's the stock price at? Which I've tried to be less dogmatic. You and I are, you know, we like sound money. You and I like gold. We're, we're probably not fans of fiat currency, mm-hmm. but in the reality of it is, is I have to say, well, like we've been calling for crashes forever, right? Like you and me, like how long does it last? This just doesn't feel right. Mm-hmm. You know, money out of nothing doesn't feel right. It, our dogma in our mind is like, well, how can you? It shouldn't be this way. It shouldn't be able I've to really sustain tried. itself this yeah, way. I've yeah. really, but you look at Japan, how long has Japan been? I mean, their jet debt to GDP is the worst in the world that I'm aware of, of a major country. And they continue to they continue innovate. To they continue out. to grow. Yeah. hundred year mortgages, yeah. you know, crazy stuff. I went back and read some of Bernanke stuff. And, and if you're dogmatic about it, you say, wait, you don't print money out of nothing. You just don't. But what's really interesting, if you took his side and reread what he said about it, he says, look, currency like gold is valuable uh, based on the value we place on it and the quantity of it we have. And the problem I see with it is that you can invent it out of nothing. But the reality of it is, and we don't trust men with that kind of power. That's probably where you and I have the big issue. But you think about it, if the population grows, you're going to need more currency. So what do you do? Dig up more gold to back it? keep up with population demand, you can dig up more gold to back it. And if people did trust it, and as long as you controlled it, what's the difference? If we say this is a dollar, it's valuable, they're limited in supply. Mm -hmm. The problem is, is if men get there, what we see is they've just flipped that switch and they turn it on to fix everything. And there was no sacrifice of anything of substance. Yep. Money out of nothing. Fiat currency is our issue. But I tell you, when we went back up to when the Dow hit 2000 or when the S&P hit 2000, I'm nervous to be bullish ever since, but I have to do what the chart says. I can't just say, well, it's going to crash. I have to do what my chart says because the chart tells the truth. But if you look at money supply and just how much liquidity oh, there started to be, incredible. I mean, it, it, you can kind of go back in hindsight and say, okay, well, yeah, that totally makes sense. Why just so, things kept going up. So here's what's crazy is we've got, what are we at? 22, 22 trillion on balance sheet right now on balance sheet, mm-hmm. 150 trillion off with all you know, promised obligations right? yeah. off. Okay. So tell me this, cause I don't know the answer to this. Now I'm interviewing you. Mm. So if you don't freak out at a trillion, 
and you don't freak out at five trillion, and you don't freak out. I guess the the guy who really understands it is the guy that would know at what point it doesn't work anymore. Like at what point? Like if you were back in the Ross Perot days, where he had his little charts. Now back in nineteen seventy when or nineteen cards, when a dollar yeah. was a dollar, you know all that stuff. If you'd have told Ross Perot back in the eighties that we were going to have a twenty-two trillion dollar deficit, and he wouldn't believed you. Yeah. He'd have said it, it collapsed before then, mm-hmm. far before then, right? So that's an interesting thought. Is we're beyond this uh, point where I think people will freak out, and I'm not sure at what level it is. Maybe it's no level. I don't know. No one talks about it, but no. us. Congress ain't talking about it. Mm-mm. Trump hasn't talked about it. Pelosi hasn't talked about it. Sleight of hand. Is it slight? Is it really wag the dog for both of them? You know, we're doing wars, we're doing impeachments, we're doing all this stuff. We're seeking, like, like we got to keep this fight going because if people realize that we owe $150 trillion, they're going to freak out. So let's just fight with each other in public. I don't as long know, as we man. both agree not to talk about that. <laughs> I, well, I think it was it. interesting last year. I doubt well, it. Well, now we're in 2020, but, you know, 2019 when they diverted away from what they were trying to, to do with interest rates. You know, I think they had how many cuts? Yeah. Three or four, three cuts? But what was interesting about that, and you and I have talked about this maybe more than the listeners care to hear, but what's really weird is if you looked at economic policy as medicine, to where I say, look, the economy's sick. So what do we have in the pharmacy? Well, we can print money. We can change rates. We can change the fractional reserve rate. What are the tools in our cabinet? What medicine do we have? If you looked at the Federal Reserve as a pharmacy with different medicines, mm-hmm. you know, I can see after 08, where we just lost half its value, you're going to drop interest rates to practically nothing. Yeah. Okay, we're at all-time highs. Unemployment, according to them, is an all-time low. How long is it? What's the unemployment Three number right now? Yeah, it's like, how far back do you have to go to find that low of a number? Yeah, it's like one of the lowest okay. ever. Yeah. So here you got stock market all-time high. You got unemployment all-time low. Their job is price stability. Why are we medicating the economy? Well, it's the, it's the government it monetizing up? their is monetizing up, debt. Right? Yeah, because if, they're, if interest rates actually did go up, you know they wouldn't be able to afford... The interest so the, on it. Now. The question is, is, is the economy really healthy if it has to be propped up? Mm-hmm. I mean, our, you and I would say no, huh. because if you got to give you heroin, the heroin hit makes you feel good. Mm-hmm. Okay. Get off the heroin. See how you do in that in 2018 going into 2019, we started trying to pull off the heroin. We tried yeah. to raise rents. Look what the market did when they started. And then Powell goes, well, we'll be patient. Remember that? Yeah. We'll be patient. He has a good poker face. Yeah, we're going to be patient. Yellen was not very cryptic. She just kind of did whatever she said she was going to do. Powell, maybe a little more cryptic. Bernanke, a little bit more cryptic. Yellen just kind of was an academic. They're all academics. But yeah, it's interesting. And the repo thing too, yeah. Why is the monetary policy accommodative right now? We're addicted to cheap money. It's almost 2008 just, you know, created a precedent for the role of the Fed. Right, the role, yeah, the they're changed, much their more power prominent. changed, their influence changed. What they did changed. I mean, they used to buy bonds. Now they're buying private stuff. That was a big change. Yeah. Well, another, well, the whole repo thing is fascinating because, yeah. you know, the overnight market, right? It, it was bank to bank lending, but when they stopped lending, then they liquidity. You know, yeah. Because it was better, you know, less risk and a huge reward keeping money at the Fed as opposed to giving it to each other. Right. And then you obviously had banks putting up really crappy collateral right and that's when the interest rates spiked on 
the repo stuff. Maybe that's why you got $1,500 gold again. Maybe some people are, they always want to turn to gold. There's so many different things happening where I just find it interesting, right? At the same time, uh, it's beyond my understandings from a rational standpoint. It's really not. That's where technicals, you know, people say, Andrew, you're a fundamental guy or a technical guy. So I talk about my Heinz trade as a fundamental trade. I'm in line with Warren Buffett. Why do I care about the technicals as well? Well, this is exactly why is because mm-hmm. they tell the truth. Because mm-hmm. when you come right down to it, let's say, Mark, let's say we know this markets go up, down, and sideways. And let's decide to create a risk management strategy that does well, regardless of the cause. Mm-hmm. Because what we're talking about now is cause, mm-hmm. right? Oh, is it the Fed? Is it the debt? Is it oh. the overnight stuff is it the repo stuff and what will happen in the future based on new causes is it the ai stuff right we're talking about causation but Mm -hmm. if you say look i don't care what the cause is i just need something that helps me if it goes up down or sideways regardless of the cause then you really have a little bit of freedom there that's why technical analysis is an important thing direction matters and at the end of the day it's the truth right it might not correlate to what the fundamentals are doing but it correlates to your buying power and what you have to show for yourself, right? Well, this might be a good tangent. How do you characterize risk when it comes to an investment? Obviously, you have the best lesson, more knowledge in markets, but. Well, first of all, it's weird having an insurance guy ask me about risk because that's your wheelhouse, mm-hmm. not mine. But I will say this, the greatest lesson I ever learned from risk is I credit Robert Kiyosaki with so much of what I've learned. And, and when I was, Way, 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 way back, he, we were in Phoenix, and I remember he said this, man, it was, it just resonated as true to me. He said, risk is about control. The more control you have, the less risk. The less control you have, the more risk. And if you have no, and then he didn't say this, I said this, I thought, and if you have no control, you're gambling. What so, are some examples of control? Let in, uh, control is when you can force an outcome. So, for example, let's do several examples in across asset classes, maybe. Let's say you're a guy like Than Merrill, who understands markets pretty well. And he knows that regardless of what the market's going to do, that he can take a single family home and he can renovate it. People bash flippers. Why don't you brass developers then? Because all flipping is is redevelopment. Mm-hmm. That's all it is. So if you can have a development business, you can have a redevelopment business. And if he understands what those rents are and he understands what those home prices are now in a short amount of time, because it takes a long time for a housing market crash, he can force appreciation like Kenny McElroy does. Better management, better facilities, features, better, yeah, better, better features, better, different cash flow stuff. They can force that appreciation and then they go and borrow out money against and they get tax-free cash. Mm-hmm. So they're managing their risk with knowledge and being able to force appreciation of some kind. Kenny McRae is the same way. He buys a development. He says, how can we raise the NOI? Can we force that to happen? As opposed to a stock where you buy Apple, now force the price up or down. So the reason that real estate investors freak out about stock is like, well, I have no control. I can't force appreciation. I can't force this up. Well. True, but if you marry the stock market with the options market, now you gain control back Mm. because now an option gives you a guarantee on where you can buy or sell. And it does it in a very liquid environment where real estate, boy, you get in trouble there. How are you going to get rid of that? So there's different 
neither one's better than the other. So let's say as a salesperson, the reason people are so scared of working on commission is there's an illusion that they can't control the outcome. So one person goes and he goes into sales and his mindset is, well, I can't make people buy from me. But a skilled salesman that understands stimulus and response, if he controls the stimulus, he controls the response and he can walk into a business meeting and know he's going to get the contract because mm. he can force it to happen with his skills. Very low risk. If McDonald's puts a, if you find a square mile area with a certain population, a certain economic status, mm. you plop a McDonald's in that, try to stop people from coming through the drive through All you can do is put your clothes sign up because you're going to make money. You can stop it from happening. So the amount of control you have I so, think is the risk. So markets, because I look at it, it's, it's interesting because risk, the probability of loss, the likelihood of loss, I look at real estate being more consistent. There are only so many things that could go wrong if you're able to look at the example you just gave, which is, okay, here's the city, here are the demographics, here are the trends over the course of time. Putting McDonald's there, there's a high probability it's going to be successful, Right. But I mean, ultimately there could be an earthquake, right? That happens and like boom, you know everything is gone. My point is like, okay, from what could cause loss, how do you go about identifying oh, that in markets? I think there's a lot though, because I think real estate's more risky than that huh, because real estate's yeah. dependent on the debt market. Yeah, totally. If you made a law that said you got to pay cash for it, what would happen to the real estate market today? You said, look, no more debt for real estate. In other words, what happened the, if they did that in the market? The amount of debt. See, the amount of, well, the amount of debt you have enables the purchase. And so the more, look at this, the more you enable people to purchase, the more they'll purchase. The more student loans you create, the higher tuition will go. Why did we have the bubble in the 2000s in real estate? Zero. Cheap uh, credit. Zero down. Easy to get credit, yeah. Zero down, no doc mm -hmm. loans. In other words, anyone can get a loan. So when you give a loan to anybody, anyone can buy the real estate. To me, that doesn't sound like a real safe environment. It turned out it wasn't, right? But think about, you know, people say, well, what about the stock market? All right. Mark Cuban has broadcast.com. They're broadcast baseball games over the internet all over. People mm. listen to their baseball games instead of radio. And Yahoo at that point was bigger than Google. They were much bigger than Google. Yahoo was the search engine. Some people didn't even know what Google was. And he sells his company for stock, $6 billion in stock. Yahoo's, maybe it's 100 bucks a share, whatever it was. Bam, 2000 crash, boom, tech bubble. I was pre-2000, yeah. Yeah, tech bubble. 2000, it's five bucks a share. So let's say it goes from 100 to five, 95% is value. Cuban's fine. He's fine. Why? It puts. Yep. He bought the right guarantee. What's more solid than that? He's got a guarantee at which he can sell, a guarantee at which he can sell. No matter what happens, the company can go bankrupt. So as a person in the insurance business, well, why do I buy insurance on my home or my life or whatever else? Was to give me some guarantees and people will buy guarantees. Those are derivatives. That's the derivative market. Is one market more solid than the other? I don't think so because they're so intertwined and they're both reliant on the debt market so much. Oh, yeah. And the bond market is probably the largest market in the world is the currency market. Okay. But 
Bond market is right right next. The right bond next to it. the bond market is much 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 bigger than the stock market, and the stock market is much much bigger than the options market. So debt is is probably the one that links them all together and makes them all risky because they're all dependent on debt. Yeah, you also look at risk associated with the bond market versus risk associated with the equity markets and risk associated with the options markets. The risk kind of keeps going higher and higher in a sense. I don't know. I mean, depends on how you how it's you know used. What's interesting is because bond is like a guaranteed at, coupon at some rate. Point, bonds are really used as a, as kind of an equity in a sense because it's bought and sold, it, not kept. It, it makes the paper asset class relevant because people hate paper. I want gold. I want real estate. I want business. Paper, paper. You die. Look, paper's everywhere. You put money in a safe for gold to show, well, it's printed on paper. Put a valet. You put your car in a valet and they give you a stub. It's on paper. You have a title. Yeah. yeah you got a title for your real estate. You got an insurance policy. So what you're really talking about now is social to primal. If you want to take it to the extreme is does your paper hold water? In a primal world, if I'm bigger and stronger, then I get the sandwich and my kids eat and we fight and you lose. and It's, it's primal. It's not civil. Mm. But if you're civil, you have a government, you have paper, you have agreements, because mm. that's all these are is agreements. This paper has meaning. And it should. If, if we're honest and true, all paper is is a handshake written down. So as long as there's honesty and truth, mm. Yeah, this is my house. I've sold it to you. Now it's your house. Agreed on paper. But if we go primal, we throw all that out and then we put up our dukes and we go back to caveman days where the biggest, strongest guy becomes the alpha male of the group. So paper is an interesting thing. So in order to invest, there's a certain amount of trust that you place in civility, a certain amount of trust that you put into this type of stuff. Hopefully that trust is not always misplaced. At the same time, you know, Mark, I'm not talking necessarily from your perspective, but, you know, from a retail perspective, what is typically the fear associated with markets and with market investing? You know, looking at the, I would say, majority of people that have ownership or stake in the market, are they ones that do it based on your definition of risk? Is there a, or is there a different definition for them? So. Are you asking like factors? Yeah. Employment Mm. is a big number because employment suggests people's ability to buy. Mm -hmm. Debt is also a big one because it suggests people's ability to buy. Mm -hmm. You have to earn the money. You have to borrow the money. Uh, Innovation is a huge one because if we innovate, now we're creating value out of nothing. Unlike a fiat currency, you create a new drug like Trifecta for CF. We were talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. Trifecta. That's $300,000 a year for a kid to be on that thing. So that's a new value there and it's worth it. It wasn't there for you. It's worth it. So as you innovate, that's a factor. What's the risk of failure to innovate? You know, right now, China, the war between the United States and China is less of a trade war and more of a who gets to AI the fastest. And they've taken a much different path towards AI than we have. So as they, if they out innovate us, that's a huge risk. Right. But they're also the yeah, failure to innovate is a major risk. I think because China's, yeah, that's called that's called obsolescence risk. Yeah. Is obsolescence risk is blockbuster video. They failed to innovate. Netflix mm-hmm. did, they didn't, Netflix won. Mm-hmm. They're gone that quick. How fast did Blockbuster die? So 
you have legislative risk because innovation always displaces the pre- the technology in which yeah. was inferior. Before. So if you go out of the individual, you say, well, I have legislative risk. For example, the new 401k law, awesome for Wall Street. Again, horrible for the worker under the guise of being better for the worker. Legislative risk, geographic risk. Does the Middle East run out of oil someday? Mm-hmm. Political risk. We're going to start a war with Iran, maybe, or whatever. Purchasing risk, inflation. So all these risk factors are there. And you look at them and you freak out. So how do you, so that's outside. Now, if you want to go inside, you say, what, what can I control? Mm-hmm. And that's the real key. Again, risk is about control. Can't control legislative risk. Can't control this. So do I run from options? No, I embrace them because it's my best chance at control. An option is a guarantee. It is, gives me a choice to do something. Someone else makes me a promise. Do they make good on it? Well, you can't control that either. Because all those risks take, you know, take evident. And then you have re- the retail investor world that really doesn't know how to control. Ignorance uh, risk. R- yeah. And that's where you look at, you know, having the upper hand is being able to know what your options are yeah. and be able to make moves yeah. so that whether it's up, down, sideways, there's, you're capitalizing on the opportunity. That comes back to those two bridges. Look, yeah. if you have ignorance to knowledge, any gap there is risky because now you're in an environment where you can't control it because you can't control what you don't understand for sure, right? And then that second gap is if you don't apply it, then you're also at risk. I was going to make a comment on China, which I think is fascinating because uh, China has just tons of money, right? They have China's, those ton, cities China's that they're- Resources. They're just building these massive cities because they have tons of capital. But what I found interesting recently I was reading a, a report on, you know, the billionaires and millionaires of the world and the fastest growing population. And it's in Africa. It's like Africa, like how, because Africa, well, they, you know, the policy of China, they have controls on population. They've had to. So they do have, yeah. they got a big population right now, but they, it's you know against the, the law to have kids over there. But do you know where the biggest investor in Africa is? Mm-mm. It's China. Really? Yeah. That's, Huge. It's massive. That's interesting. Yeah. So you look at, you know, what they're doing there. They have big presence in the Middle East as well. It's interesting, right? Because you look at China and I think years ago and we would do a podcast, we would say, wow, they're building these massive cities. They have tons of resources and they have those limitations on kids. So man, they're destined for failure, but they're innovating, right? They're innovating oh, they're by going outside and putting money they're into- innovating. Yeah. And that's what's, where I find it it's fascinating what's to see kind of how the world's becoming global. It's important to be patriotic, but not dogmatic because there's some red, like I'm a red-blooded American. I mm-hmm. love my country, mm-hmm. right? If I say, is it unpatriotic to say they might be beating us? Well, that's just reality. So you have to live in reality. You can still be patriotic. And, you know, that's not anti-American to say they're beating us. And it's really weird because they have this social, they have this economic capitalism, and yet they still have this communal, communistic social stuff and control and big brother and all that. Hong Kong and and China, it's a weird place. Mm -hmm. Because you go over there and you feel the energy of capitalism, and yet it's still under North Korea type crazy dictatorships. And they're pushing and back like, now. Yeah. Oh, they're never going to, you give them that stuff, they'll revolt. They'll want their freedom. Well, they kind of get enough freedom to make a buck. It's interesting how they're playing the game. And what we don't want to be, if we're not all part of the human race and we decide, okay, it's us versus them, we don't want to be arrogant right now because they got a lot of minds. If you believe two heads are better than one, how many engineers do they have as opposed to how many engineers, how many AI guys do they have working on this? Oh, we're just smarter because we're Americans? 
Tell you what, they have resources. And they're spreading their influence. And they have a culture of, I wouldn't say of an underdog. We kind of feel like in America, we're kind of it. Pride comes before the fall. You got to respect those guys. Probably the best thing to do is start learning how to get along in the world. No kidding. And work together. Yeah, that's probably the best thing, like do unto others type stuff and build bridges and not panic and see them as enemies. But that's the way the world has always been, you know? Well, as I was saying, it's like the the world's a world. We've known there's people all over the place, but it's becoming so much more linked. I think that's because of technology and a lot of the innovation that's happening is allowing third world countries, emerging markets to start to live a better life. Google Translate. Where's that going to be in 30 years? I mean, pretty soon we'll be listening to a Chinese podcast and they'll be listening to yours Mm -hmm. and ideas will be exchanged so much more freely with language barrier dropped. I mean, innovation. So, and that's where you look at this, you know, there's this kind of velocity of people where you have innovation and ideas and things are just compounding. They're going to continue to the language barrier is going to become less and less significant. Do you think we'll be, uh, people hate change. Change causes upset. People resist change. Dogmas will take truth, chain it with their chains, and sink at the bottom of every ocean if it doesn't fit the rhetorical goals. Do you think as we innovate and truth is discovered from a epistemological standpoint, do you think that we're going to get, do you think we'll be able to change, like we'll have a culture of change is okay now? You think that'll ever happen or do you think? The DNA that we've evolved into just, well, just no, don't I think change. change, there's like a, I think there's equity in change. What I mean by yeah, that I mean. is like equity, meaning there's room to change, right? There's capacity to change. And in the US, I don't think there is tons of capacity other than the millennial generation who are going to be inheriting trillions of dollars over the next Problems. 10 years. Yeah. Uh, but I look at the rest of the world, right? Because we're 300 million people in the US, but there's billions everywhere else. And they see, you know, as the world becomes more connected, they're going to see what's possible in life and they're going to want that. And so the equity for change is, is huge. The capacity to change outside the United States, I think is really big. Millennials are interesting to think about is I hate that stereotypical thing is you just label all these people, you're millennials and you judge them. They're a diverse group and just like any other thing is. So with that confessed and with that caveat, they're an interesting group because on the one side, we see them as more open to change, brighter. My kids, even below millennials, you you got iPads, you have, you learn different, you think about the world differently. And the other part of it though, is a lot of them, have they been tested like the greatest generation, like the World War II guys were, were they tested, if they had resistance? Because on the one hand, they're like, everything should be free. School should be free. Everything should be free. We shouldn't have to suffer. Mm-hmm. Don't say anything. Like they're the kings of, like they've been coddled a bit in that, oh, don't say anything that, like assault can be done with words now. Like you want to call it, like that book, The Coddling of the American Yeah, we Mind. did it. We, yeah. It's our last podcast. All of a sudden you go on on a college campus. Oh my gosh, I need to save from because someone said something. Yeah. So I look at them as maybe, are they strong to handle these problems? And the other, I, well, they're smart. And they're open to change. They're yeah. going to be an interesting generation to see how they deal with all the crap that the, the baby boomers dumped on them. And I look at there are challenges, there are problems, and there have been forever. And I think people go through different challenges, right? Obviously, going through world wars and being at the brink of death, that's a big challenge. I think the challenge is going to be different. Mm. And the challenge may 
you can measure extreme, but extreme in a sense is, is kind of based on perspective. But I think they're smart. They want simple. They want easy. They're looking more for lifestyle than they are for security. And I think that is a different motivation that drives behavior that is un- unprecedented. Yeah, and then when boomers you, for security. And when you put resources in their hands, right, I think it's going to be better used than with baby boomers. Have you seen the uh, Bill Gates docuseries that's mm-hmm. on Netflix? No. It's awesome. So it shows really the how he's helped to brainstorm, finance, create awareness to some of the global challenges, mainly in you know Africa, third world countries, whether it's just uh, uh, pollution or HIV or water cleanliness. I mean, the, one of his big projects in that docuseries mm-hmm. uh, that talked about was how you know kids in you know, parts of Africa continue to die because of diarrhea, right? Because there's so much bad water, bad sewage. And so he, you know, essentially pioneered, but he brought good minds together to create a sanitary system that was affordable. And it took many, several years to do it, but what he's been able to accomplish there, I think that's the mentality. That's Bill Gates, right? I think that's the mentality of those, those that are, you know, millennials, right? I think that they're looking, they see how things should be. They're empathetic. They care, other they, that's where the quality comes from with yeah. that group. They yeah. care about equality out of empathy. Yeah. And quite frankly, the baby boomers did not feel that way. No, you know, because they, they were in war. It was about survival and, and, and survival yeah. is you first, right? Before yeah. anybody else, yeah. right? Millennials haven't had to go through that. So I think they are sympathetic, empathetic, empathetic. and that's where their minds work different, how they get information, how they organize it's different and so, they may be able to get a better outcome than the methods that were used previous. Could be. They got more intelligence, more knowledge than we had in our generation. Yeah. But here's the, back to investing. When you look at all the stuff we've talked about, generational stuff and economic stuff and risk and all that, investing is about wanting to first sacrifice, first put out before you get in. So that's a very that can hurt people right from the beginning because if you're not willing to go out, notice when you, you asked me that question, said, what's investing? I didn't do it in a monetary sense because I don't think about it that mm-hmm. way. I think about there's investments of time, energy, there's investments of love, there's investments of many kinds other than money. And it's when you give in hoping that it'll come back bigger, whether you're investing in your children, you're hoping that you're hoping the fruit of that will be bigger than what you put in. Yeah playing the piano you're hoping the fruit of it will be bigger than what you put in it's an exchange i mean it's an exchange where it begins with that there's an output that's greater than the input and the thing that's tough is whenever you put something out because there's not a guarantee that that'll happen there's your risk so you manage that with control saying okay if i put this out what can i control to ensure that this comes back to Mm -hmm. me and it's so much not about advice in 2020 i'm going to put my take my gloves off and I'm going to start punching advice and the culture of advice because it's dangerous. Why fight personal development? Why fight that work? Why fight becoming before having yep. or doing? Why fight becoming? Just give me advice. Just tell me what to buy. A lot of people get... Just give me know, the result. Yep. If you were to listen to this podcast, what people are going to do is they're listen to all this talk we do about millennials or AI or any of the stuff we've talked about. They're still going to be caught in it. What am I supposed to buy? At the end of the day, what they're craving, what their addiction is, like heroin, I want to know what to buy. I want to know what to do. And there's plenty of people who will sell that heroin on the street. They'll sell it to them and give them advice and they'll suck it up. But if you sell this in a different way of saying, no, it's not about what I'm going to buy. 
It's about what I'm going to be. That idea of personal development, that should be sexy. That should be exciting. It should be healthy. And you look at it and say, okay, my schooling told me to get a job and it's not looking good. Maybe my next schooling is I'm going to learn to invest and I'm going to be an investor before I have investments. That's be, have, behavior, right? When you take the be and you put the have, put them together, that's behavior. You got to be before you can have. The doing is in between behavior. Now, I'll use this as a final, a final point, and then I'll uh, have you just tell everyone how they can buy your books, uh, access your courses, follow you. Mm-hmm. What I would say is kind of on that vein, which is as I've looked at giving people advice and doing the podcast and having a business that revolves around it, people rarely connect to why they're doing what they're doing. Mm. They really connect to the objective. They do it because it's they're supposed to do it. Yeah. That's never qualified. And I look at when an individual realizes that they think all these things have to happen in order for them to experience something. And that experience gives them a feeling or an emotion. That's ultimately what it is. And I look at those yeah. emotions, those feelings can be experienced right now. You don't need all of these things to, to have that outcome. And that's where you look at those that have achieved enormous amounts of wealth, success, prestige. Might not be happy. But they're still like freaking miserable and way more miserable. Kill yeah. some, in some instances, they take their own life. No question. So it's one of those things where you, you need to connect really the role of money, the role of an investment, because we live in a time that it's like we're all freaking wealthy. If you compare to like oh, what comparatively and the other parts of the world and then look at it in, in, in history and, and you look at just wow, what we're able to do and experience and how incredible it is. Now, doesn't mean that investing and achieving more isn't going to bring more of those experiences, but you got to connect that first. If you just go about thinking that your life's going to suck until you have this much money or this job or this title or this bank account balance, it doesn't work that way, right? There's, um, you know, I don't get out to church. My parents raised me really in church and I don't get out as much these days, but there's a wonderful passage that I remember. And I don't remember where specifically it came from, but it was about a group of people. It's a wonderful ideal where they kind of figured it out. A group of people that had a society where it was almost communist because they had all things common among them. But it said this, is and they lived after the order of happiness. That's a huge thing. When you look at the role that money plays in that, Maslow's hierarchy is instructive is food, clothing, shelter. You got to have some to do that. And so people say, well, money can't buy happiness. Well, hunger doesn't buy happiness. And sick kids without medicine doesn't buy happiness. And being naked and afraid on day 25 isn't happiness, especially if there's not, if it could be day 300, Mm -hmm. right? As you go up there, then you look at familial relationships that are different. Well, having money means you have time. I think having a little extra cash has helped me spend more time with my kids. I think it's been better not to have a nine to five job that most people look at normal and having more time to put into my mm-hmm. kids. Problem though is that some people get so up with caught up with money, they never put in that time for those relationships. And the money eclipses the relationships. So they're killing. So in that case, money, too much of it kills that hierarchy. Self actualization, try to buy that. Try to buy that. Buy How that. many Ferraris can you buy? You're not going to get it, right? You're not going to get it. So happiness huge part as you get into your investing thing i love robert kiyosaki's cash flow game rat race 
Because really, the rat race, if you cash flow, if you get out of the rat race, that's really when you win it. It's not when you get to the fast track and now you're, it kind of gets ridiculous after that. Not ridiculous, but in the, okay, now I'm doing these charity things. I'm making millions of dollars and I'm buying this. And they're big deals. But really, when you look at where that game is really played on the first page of the financial, when you get passive income above expenses, now you have freedom. That's a huge happiness thing, man. That's a huge one. And so if you go into your investing and you say, you know what, if I don't do anything more than that, is get passive income above expenses, I think there is some happiness to be found in that. I think that it's not in the money, it's in the, I don't want to call it the status, it's in the life that you have at that point, where now if you have time, you can study what you want to study. And if that's your thing to go out and get another hundred million, then great, you have to pursue it. I'll tell you, passive income above expenses out of the rat race, that's a good place to start with a goal of investing. I think that many people would find a track. And I'll end with this because what you're saying is profound and still goes to that idea. It's, it's life people are looking for and they think that having to get to certain points, financial standpoint, is when they're going to be able to experience it. I'll use an example with a client who got divorced right as he was about to sell his business and he owned tons of property. He had been going you know, to different personal development conferences, had studied and read books and watched videos. And while he was doing it, it was all for his family. That's what he told himself. But yet he neglected his family the entire time. Wow. Neglected their needs. And it's that whole mentality where I'm doing this all for them. They should love me because of that. Mm-hmm. But most people don't, they won't give you love for that specific purpose. Plus, after you achieve that level where you have the money, you have the freedom, you have the time, and then suddenly life is going to start. I keep going back and forth on it because I look at the necessity that's in me, which is I have to keep growing. I have to be keep contributing, but I find fulfillment in that. And if I do more, then I'm going to have more of that fulfillment. But yet I've connected yeah. the fulfillment piece to it. I satisfied fulfilled right now. And if I get more, it's just going to be more, but I'm good with where I'm at right now. Investing is not about money. In other words, money is a subset of investing, but not vice versa. And we kind of opened the program with it is investing in people is a huge thing. Investing in hobbies is a huge thing. Investing in growth is a huge thing. How we spend our time, that is the investment that is Investing in your family. It's required. Like the invest, the time is going to be, you're giving, you know, you have it, you have a limited amount of it, you can't make it and how you invest the time is huge. Part of that time will be invested to learn and make money. Part of it will be to foster relationships. Part of it will do personal philanthropic things. What did you achieve? What did you build? What's your legacy? I mean, Steve Jobs, incredible legacy. Look at the stuff we use and what he left and what he gave us. Mm-hmm. That's, I don't think he went to work for more money. I don't think he did. He knew what he wanted, who, why, and all that stuff. So Watch the Bill Gates thing. I think you'll find yeah, I, you'll get, I'll, a, I'll like you get a kick out of yeah. that. Because I talk about a guy that doesn't have to Thanks do anything. Thanks for having me. This was fun. Sounds it's good. always fun for us. We don't hang out enough. I know. We live in the same city. We should hang out all the time. Our families get along awesome. Christmas gifts. You exchange Christmas gifts and, tell, and Christmas gonna, cards. I'm not going to tell you what I got from you, dude. That was so good. <laughs> Marcy was like, are you serious? He's like, is he serious? I go, Patrick, he's never serious. Dude, it was awesome. Both of them were awesome, but 
the one particular one I'm talking about was I haven't tried to practice with it yet. <laughs> that was the purpose. Don't like know where you come up with this stuff. I don't either. How can listeners get a hold of you? Learn you know, I'm what you put online. My, I'm changing my pitch on on this stuff. I don't want to rant. I know we're at the end of the show. When I Google stuff, they Google me like everyone else does, right? I mean, Google's looking at what I search. And because I'm investing, like the ads I get on my YouTube stuff are all about stocks, all of it. And I'm so sick of them. I hate them. And I hate how they're presented. It's usually some guy in a Learjet. I'm the greatest option trader. There's this new one now. I used to work on Wall Street and I found their dirty little secret. I'm going to share it with you. And I'm just like, are people this stupid? I'm going to be really clear about, like, before we talk about how people get a hold of me, who should get a hold of me first? Mm. I am just going to take my gloves off in 2020. I have no interest in people in having any students or anyone read my books that want advice and that don't want to develop themselves and put a little work. So this probably cuts out, like, if I say, come to my website and I'll make, I was over in Vietnam and I saw some people saying, yeah, just sign up for my program. Click the button, follow to do is 10,000 bucks a day. I was like, people believe this and they were, they sign up for these programs. So, you know, my website's the Cashflow Academy. And the way we approach this is we say, look, the people that want to learn and be investors and get excited about learning, they're the, it's the best place in the world you could go. It is the best place in the world you could go. The people that want quick tips, the people that want something for nothing, that's not an investment. Remember, Something for nothing is not investing. Investing is putting out something and then getting something back. If you put out nothing, you get something that's not investing. It's not. And so we just tried to purge like any messages when we do promos now. We really don't want to work with those people, frankly. We don't. So that kind of sounds weird. Like, Andy, tell us. At first, I'm saying, look, there's only certain type of people we want to drop by. Is that bad to do? No. I don't know if it's bad to do or not, no. but I've just grown so weary of the environment of advice and programs and books and stuff. I'd like to be very frank and clear. Would you like to do some work and put in some effort to gain knowledge and discipline? We're going to be a great resource for you. So with well, it's that, kind of like the natural order. It's the natural yeah, order of things. If I you, just, if you want to get reason, something more oh, than what you currently good. have, like there has to be. It has to An be output. more in the process. Right. So our website's Cashflow Academy. We got a lot of free stuff for the something for nothingers to satisfy them. But yeah, it's good stuff. We teach uh, the four pillars of investing. We teach fundamental technical analysis, cash flow, risk management. We do it in a way that's fun and simple. And cashflowacademy.com, that's where we're at. Okay, man. It's good to have you here. Really fun to hang out, man. I always look forward to this stuff. I don't know if anybody else cares about what we talked about, but I love hearing what you have to say. We have like our pre and post conversations that take up pretty much the entire day. Yeah, we just can't. (laughs) I always answer your calls and stuff. And I think if I call Patrick, he's going to put me in voicemail because you know it's an hour if we talk. But you always answer your phone. It's pretty amazing. I would always answer your call, Andy. (laughs) (laughs) we haven't gone on a mandate for a while we should go to see 1917 let's go that world war one movie i'm in all right let's do it is that the one where it's all in real time and they they never break from the camera yeah and it's like a real cinematic achievement type thing you want to do that yeah i do it i don't think martian kids want to see it i'll go okay i I heard about that it's like a real 
innovative is. cinema. Oh yeah. It'll Sports. probably win the cinematography Academy award. And I think they, they had some awards recently that oh, they already a bunch done of all stuff. that stuff, but yeah, it, it looks, it looks, I love stuff. like war movies and stuff. Lot to learn. Okay. All right, Andy. Thank you, man. Appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Standard Podcast. Be sure to visit the show's official website, thewealthstandard.com, for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Guest opinions are their own. If you require specific investing, financial, legal, tax, or any other specialized advice, please consult an appropriate professional. We welcome and appreciate reviews of the show. Head on over to iTunes or Stitcher to leave your review. And don't forget to subscribe to the show to get access to every new episode and exclusive interviews this season. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Oh,